0: Let me now read verses 1 through 11 of Luke chapter 5. Here is what he writes. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when he had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Would you take a moment and just ask God to speak to you today through his word. And then I'll pray for us that he would do uh, this for all of us as well. Father, as we come here this morning, we come with eager expectation. We do not come simply to church to go through motions, to check things off lists. We come to hear from the living God that you are active here today. We have worshipped you today, spoken of who you are, the glorious reality of the triune God. So Father, we're grateful for you and who you are and all that you have done. We're grateful for your son that you sent him. We're grateful for the spirit that empowers us and has been given to guarantee our salvation. And Father, as we open your word now, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, remove every distraction that we have so that we might indeed hear and respond to you. It's all for your glory. It's all for your gospel. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I was hunting in Blind River, Ontario, Canada. And when I was sitting in the woods waiting for something to eat and something to mount on a wall, I was thinking about going back to the camp and fishing, because that's what I enjoyed probably much more. And to be honest, that's what I was, even more than shooting an animal, what I was looking forward to. And for me, there just aren't that many things in life that are better than a crisp, sunny morning, when the air is a little colder than the temperature of the summer water, when you can see a soft haze rising from the surface of the lake as the water evaporates, when the surface is so perfectly still and clear that you can see just the mossy mysteries underneath, when the only sounds are wildlife and birds, a few boat motors and the voices of fishermen around you or the buddy that you're fishing with that morning like I was that day. And on this particular day, we came back with a few decent pike and a few bass. So overall, I thought it was pretty good for how, how, uh, how we did. And I thought we did all right until a few minutes later when a really, really old man pulled up in his boat. And this guy was old. I mean... I was shocked. He was breathing old. He was so old. It just it just I mean I'm a pastor so all my old man jokes are church related jokes, but it made me think of them. I was just looking at him. I was thinking of the jokes I'd heard of course in seminary and by other pastors like he was so old when Moses split the Red Sea, this guy was on the other side fishing and yelling, "Hey, we're fishing over here." He's so old. That when he reads the Bible, he reminisces about all the good old days. (laughs) He's just old. This guy's just old. I mean, the skin just kind of falling off his face. Old. And this guy pulls up in his boat. And it it was my friend and I, able-minded, able-bodied men, came up with a couple pike and a few bass. And then this guy reaches down and pulls up a string of northern pike the size of which I had never seen. I mean, just chalked full of fish, probably all over 30 inches long, just huge fish. And I was utterly shocked. I was absolutely shocked by what I saw. I couldn't believe it. I immediately thought, this guy must be some kind of fish whisperer, or he's, he's like, he's definitely like the Yoda of fishermen, 900 whatever years old. Like, the, he must know every nook and cranny, every lure that is to be used, every time of day to go, he knows all the tricks to that lake. And so I thought to myself, I wonder what that feels like, the thrill of pulling up that kind of string of fish. I wonder what that feels like. For me, it would have been the fishing day of my life. For him, it was just another day at the office. And I couldn't believe it. So catching a fish that's big enough to feed yourself, that's pretty good. But catching enough fish to feed the whole hunting camp, that's a lot better. So I asked his son, Mark, who was in charge of these hunting expeditions, uh, I said, do you think your dad could teach us a few of his tricks? Do you think he could show us maybe a few of the spots on the lake or what lures he's using or what depth he places them at so he can catch such a miraculous (laughs) catch of fish that he was coming in with? And In other words, I was basically asking, would he multiply his skill into my life. And Mark was a man of very few words. He is always answering your questions, at least our time with him during that week, with very short answers. And he looked at me, thought about it, and he went, nope. That's all he said. It was abundantly clear, we could not ask the question in another way, another time, or rephrase it. His answer was going to be the same. His knowledge, his gift was a family secret. There was no secret about that. It was insider's only information. It was for their gain, not mine. It was their gain, not mine. Let me ask you a question about your faith now, and I'll pull these things together. What kind of impact do you believe God wants your faith to have In this world? Maybe that seems unrelated, but just hang with me for a moment. What kind of impact do you believe God wants your faith to have in this world? A personal impact? Do you view your faith as a personal experience that primarily benefits you, as something that feeds your own soul? How about additional? Do you view your faith in Jesus Christ as influencing your immediate family, Uh, at least to an extent? And if you're lucky, maybe there'll be a few people along the way, a coworker perhaps or a neighbor that says, you know what, they seem to be like a decent person, a moral person, a nice person. Maybe I'll ask them a question. So at best, additional. What about multiplicational? Do you view your faith as a God-given calling that not only saved you from your sins, but compels you? to multiply the gospel into the lives of other people, compels you to multiply the gospel into the lives of other people. Most evangelical Christians today, certainly within our society and culture, are content with personal, or at best, additional faith, where their goal is simply to survive, to keep their head down, don't get too crazy, Keep things private and personal as much as possible, because to really put yourself out there, to really try to make a difference for the gospel, to make that kind of investment in the lives of people, that comes at personal risk, relationally, reputation perhaps, or otherwise. But this story shows us something altogether different. Whereas most people in our culture who might call themselves a believer, they might say they have found the most incredible treasure in the world. They might say that the truth of Jesus is the greatest news they've ever experienced once it was truly understood and truly embraced, but they keep it to themselves. It's a family secret. It's insider's only information for their gain, no one else's. This is the fruit of individualism. This is the fruit of individualism within our society that has made its way into the church. And this story in Luke 5 shows us something altogether different. That Jesus didn't just save sinners so they'd be satisfied with a self-serving faith. Much different than that. That type of faith, in fact, is not a Christ-centered faith at all. In Luke 5... Peter, here called Simon, this is before Jesus gave him a new name, so he's going by the name he was given at birth. Peter, called Simon, James, and John, are confused, or I'm sorry, confronted with the divine glory and power of Jesus. Confronted with it. And the only proper response to to that divine glory and power was to prioritize everything around this calling to multiply the gospel to share it with others. And Luke 5 truly helps us see that Jesus is calling us into a multiplying life. He is calling you into a multiplying life. We've been looking at the seven values of Woodside Bible Church from the Gospel of Luke. It's not because we want to talk about Woodside. It's because we want the values that we find in his life multiplied in our spiritual community, multiplied into our lives. And I wholeheartedly believe That if we strive to express these values in our community of faith, God will bring healing and restoration and redemption and revival to the lives of people that we know. I really believe that, and I hope that you do too. I hope you don't think, oh, that's just a pastor talking, and that's just kind of nonsense talk. That's not really what I experienced. We need to believe this together in faith, friends, that this is why we're here. This is why we exist. This is our purpose that we really believe with this gospel, God will bring healing and restoration and redemption and revival to the lives of people. And today, we want to talk about the value of multiplying leaders for the gospel, basically, making disciples. I pray this over my kids every day. I usually say, amongst other things, God, help them to be leaders for Christ not followers of this world, leaders for Christ, people who make a difference for the gospel by imparting that gospel into the lives of others. If you are a Christian, it does not matter if you're 10 years old or like I like to call the guy in Ontario, old man Ontario, it doesn't matter how old you are. Jesus is calling you into a multiplying life. So here's the key question we want to focus on today. I hope to answer this through our story. How does a Christian move beyond personal or additional impact to multiplicational impact for the gospel? How does a Christian move beyond personal or additional impact to multiplicational impact for the gospel? Three ways. The first is be aware of Jesus' presence in your life. And we're going to spend most of our time unpacking what that means from the text. That's where most of the verses uh, really, that's what they relate to. So we'll spend most of the time here on this first point. That first it means being aware of Jesus' presence in your life. Let's look at the story and draw out of it uh, these three ways where we can move towards multiplicational impact for the gospel. Look at verse one. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and we were washing their nets. Now, the Lake of Gennesaret is the same as the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. I've been there before. Here's a few pictures of it. It's stunning to see. It was about 18 miles from Nazareth, from where Jesus grew up, to the Sea of Galilee, about a 30 kilometer trip. And Peter, who at this point was called Simon, was with his brother Andrew and his partners, James and John. And they spent the night that was their job. they spent the night fishing with dragnets. and dragnets was backbreaking work for the fishermen. The way it would work is you would lay out a massive net in a semicircle. It was typically over a hundred feet long. It weighed typically more than a thousand pounds, all the nets together. and the men on the two boats would draw in this. Net hand over hand over hand, they'd bring it towards them, they'd look for fish, they'd put the fish in the boat, cast the nets out again, draw it hand over hand over hand all night long, empty the fish, throw the net back out, and they'd do this for their entire shift. It was exhausting work. It was like a first century CrossFit gym. It's amazing to me, by the way, that our culture is so sedentary that now we pay big money to do the same kind of work. But I can tell you, these men were not doing it to burn calories and build muscle. They were doing this to feed their families. And so when the morning came and the sun rose, they had nothing, not one fish. Professional fishermen. They knew all the spots. They knew the time. They knew the place. They had nothing. So, what they would do is they would beach their boats, eat breakfast, and they had to wait for the sun to rise because once the sun started to rise, they would mend their nets. They'd mend the areas where they were damaged or where holes had broken through, and then they'd lay out their nets in the sun to be dried. Then they would fold the nets, about a thousand pounds worth, and then put them back in the boats to get prepared for the next night. It's a lot of work. Now, this day started a little differently. After catching nothing, a crowd had gathered at their work site. They were probably just used to seeing other fishermen and a few fires and a few other things of that nature, but now it's a whole crowd had gathered. And what did they gathered for? Well, the text tells us, look at it. The text says, they gathered to hear the word of God. When Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, we see this in Luke chapter 4, his preaching had undeniable authority and power. People sensed it, they knew it, they gathered to hear it, so they packed in around him. Getting into one of the boats, verse 3, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Jesus asked Simon Peter if he could basically use his boat as a speaking stage, as a pulpit. So Jesus gets into the boat. They push off from the beach a little bit. Simon Peter throws anchor. So they're kind of sitting there just in the boat. Jesus is speaking. But then because the water is right there, the hills uh, sloping downwards towards the lake, all the people who had gathered could hear his sermon, could hear his teachings. Now, if you're Peter, think about what you just went through over the last 12 hours, You're exhausted. What happens when you come to church exhausted? He's sitting in a nice boat. The sun's on his head. You know, that nice little movement left and right. His eyes had to be so tired. He probably took everything within him, maybe just to keep himself awake. Or maybe he was captivated. We don't really know. Luke never tells us the content of Jesus' talk or sermon it doesn't tell us that particular teaching. What he wanted to get to is what happened after he was done. And so that's what it says in verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he, Jesus, said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, if you're Peter, again, you're probably expecting to get Jesus back to shore, head home, and do what? Come on, this is the 1130 service. You guys are awake, sleep, Right? I know when I have a long day, I don't know if you do this, but I literally do this very often in my home. Katie and I will have a long day, we'll get to bed, and when we crawl kind of into bed, sometimes I'll just lay back and just be like, Thank you, Jesus, for this bed. I am so grateful because I so badly just want to sleep. And it feels so good just to lay down in that bed. Peter's probably anticipating that. But instead, Jesus says, oh, and by the way, can you put out a little from the land and set down all those nets again? Let them all back down for a catch. Well, no, I don't feel like doing that, quite frankly. Simon answers, master, We toiled all night and we took nothing. Strikeout, zero. But at your word, I will let down the nets. This wasn't a simple chore. I already alluded to it. It wasn't like Simon Peter just needed to throw his fishing line back in the water a couple times and throw a cast or two, and then be done with it. He was asking Peter here, Jesus is asking Peter, who hadn't slept all night, that pulled in empty net after empty net to load up 1,000 pounds of wet nets, row out to deep water, and set the nets in the middle of the day just with his brother without his partners. Which meant hours of more work to bring them back in, take them back to the beach, lay them out in the sun, mend them up, and then dry them, and then fold them to put them back out for that evening. Basically, this is like a, now turning into a 48 hour shift. So, I don't know how you respond, but when someone offers me advice on something where I have quite a bit of knowledge and competence, and I don't think they have much knowledge or competence in that particular area, I have a really hard time paying much attention to what they're saying. I don't know how you are with that. It would be like if one of us went to Matthew Stafford, for example. And said, I don't play football. Actually, I've never played football. But if you do what I say, then you will score a touchdown on every offensive possession this year. Guaranteed. Write it down. Are you interested? (laughs) He'd be like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. So you can empathize with Peter's initial response here a little bit. Like, Jesus, what right do you have? A carpenter from Nazareth telling a professional fisherman from Galilee what to do and how to do it. But while we can empathize with his initial response, we can also appreciate even more so now his obedience. Makes me appreciate his obedience. Now, Peter knew that Jesus had had some long nights as well. He had healed all the sick sick people who had come to him in Capernaum. He watched Jesus bring healing into his own home. So he says something I find fascinating. At your word, I'll do it. I want to ask you this morning, when Jesus clearly speaks, although you might have reasons to say, that doesn't make any sense to me, will you be obedient? When Jesus clearly speaks, you say, that's not how the world works, that's not how things go. Will you be obedient and take him at his word? And do you know that he has spoken? He's spoken about your marriage. He's spoken about your family. He's spoken about your heart. He's spoken about your passions. He's spoken about your mission. He's spoken about your sexuality. He's spoken about your mind. Will you take him at his word? Will you believe what he says? Will you be obedient? Or will you say, you know what? I feel like I have the competence and understanding in this arena. I'm going to do it my way. Peter took him at his word. Verse 6 And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Peter had barely set the dragnets when all he could do was hang on to the ends of the nets as the boat started being pulled in the direction the fish were swimming. Because there was such a massive now catch of fish. So he yells to his partners, James and John, come and help. And so they launch the second boat. Now each boat is seven and a half feet wide, about 20 feet long. And it says they filled both boats to the point where they were almost sinking. That means several tons of fish. That's a fishing story. I've seen birthday cards for fishermen, And they say, may all your fishes come true. <laughs> and on that day, Simon Peter's team, they were the birthday boys. <laughs> all their fishes had come true. It would have literally been worth a fortune. It was worth a fortune. And yet, they notice here that this is an outpouring of the power of Jesus Christ over nature. The fish of the sea were obedient to Jesus in the same way the frogs and the flies and the locusts were obedient to Yahweh in Egypt centuries before. And all of a sudden, these men who know the story are thinking, who is this guy? What's going on here? Who is this man, Jesus? Verse eight, so what's Peter's response? When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down. At Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. This, to me, is where the story gets fascinating. He didn't think about the money, he didn't think about the business, he didn't think about how to get all the fish to market, he didn't think about what he was gonna do next to expand his business. His focus turned directly and only to Jesus he immediately recognized that Jesus was set apart. He recognized he's the first in Luke that is recorded to recognize Jesus as the Lord. So he says, Lord, you're the Lord of fish. You're the Lord of fishermen. You're the Lord of nature. You're the Lord of the sea. He might not have known Jesus was the Messiah, but he knew he was standing in the presence of God himself. He was surrounded by Jesus' presence. And when he was surrounded by Jesus' presence and this miraculous catch of fish, what would we expect him to do? We would expect him and his business partners, but certainly Simon Peter, to jump up and down and say, thank you. We got nothing all night. Thank you. But instead of saying thank you, Simon says, I'm sorry. What a weird reaction he gets this miraculous catch of fish and his reply is, I'm sorry. When you see for the first time that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, when you understand that Jesus Christ is God in flesh and he's been pursuing your heart, when you see the perfection from his life, the beauty of his love, and you are confronted with a real understanding of the gospel, the first thing our heart does is say, I'm Not worthy. We see it over and over again in the scriptures that the presence of Jesus, the first response to that is to say, I'm not worthy. I'm covered in guilt. When Peter is confronted with Jesus' authority, with his power, he immediately recognizes what does he recognize? The personal consequences of his sin. All these fish are here and he's thinking about his sin. Why? Because of who Jesus is. This is the proper response to God. This is the response of Isaiah the prophet when he said, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And he responded in like manner. This is the response of Job when he said, I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the response of the Apostle John when he writes later in the book of Revelation, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Being in agony over your sin, where Peter is right here. Let me remind us this morning, friends, that's a great place to be. It's a great place to be. When's the last time you felt in agony over your sin? Because unless you come to a place where you recognize how great Jesus is and how desperate you are to be rescued, you will never recognize that you need God's grace and forgiveness. You will always think that you can do it your own way. You always think that your works will be enough. Peter's response when he is confronted with divinity is to tell Jesus, notice what he says. He says, go away. I would have been been more likely to, to, to say something to the effect of, Jesus, can you come back tonight again and every night for like the next, you know, 10 years or so? That would be fantastic. Just come back, make that whole deal happen. I'll give you a slice of the pie. He, he didn't say, Jesus, come back. Instead, when this thing happened, he tells Jesus to go away Fascinating, as you watch Peter's faith grow throughout the Gospels, by the time he came towards the resurrection about three years later, he had denied Jesus three times. He had fallen into utter sin. He had rejected his own Savior by mouth to people. And when Jesus was resurrected, again giving him a miraculous catch of fish, and he's in the boat and he recognizes this Jesus, this time, instead of telling Jesus, go away, he jumps out of the boat and runs to him. What does that teach us? The more we know of our sin and the more we are aware of Jesus' presence, the more we will run to him, not run away from him. So many people, when they talk about their faith, they're like, I, I just need to get it straight. Before I go back to church, I need to make sure I get my morality to a certain level. I need to make sure I have things in order. I need to make sure my heart's in a good place. Then I can pray again. Then I can go to church again. Then I'll have an impact. But God, I don't want to come to you until I kind of get this stuff sorted out so I can come to you clean. And that's the lie in the statement because we'll never come clean. The, instead, the gospel says, no, no, when, when you are acutely aware of your own sin in agony over the weight of your own unworthiness because of who Jesus is, instead of running away from God, run to him, and you'll find rescue, you'll find salvation, and you'll find love, and you'll find grace, and you'll find peace. Only Jesus' presence in your life takes away your sin. Nothing else. He's the only one who can forgive. He's the only one who can put your life back together. Have you recognized that Jesus is after your heart? Have you, have you felt the weight of that unworthiness in your life? Don't feel like you are in a bad place. That is a great place. Run to Him, He'll save you. Receive Him. Fall down at his knees and maybe for the first time in your life just say, Lord. So many people say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, yeah. mm -hmm. I, I believe the facts. I got them down. Is he your Lord? That's real faith. So how can we make a multiplicational difference in our lives? It begins with recognizing Jesus' presence in our lives, that he has come to save us, he's come to rescue us, and we have to submit our lives to him. It's the act of salvation. Number two, know Jesus' purpose for your life. Verse nine, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Let me go through these points a little Uh, More quickly, for sure. So, while everyone else is celebrating the fish, Jesus and Peter have this prophetic exchange. And this is a beautiful expression here. Maybe you've heard it since you were a kid, if you grew up in church. Maybe for you this morning, it's brand new. This idea of catching men, fishers of men. You could literally translate it, you can literally translate it, catching people alive. It's two Greek words that make up that expression catching people alive. Jesus is saying to Peter, Your job description's gonna change. From now on, you will be catching people. But here's the beautiful nuance of the expression not for death, you will be catching people for life. They are spiritually dead, and you'll be catching them to bring them to life. So he says, You will be catching people alive, catching men and women alive. Our job is to catch people that are spiritually dead. And through the gospel, watch them come to life. That's what it means to multiply. The first time I took Josiah on a fishing trip to northern Ontario, he's sitting up here this morning, I asked him if I could tell the story. The first time we went up there, uh, we go every year with some dads and their sons uh, far, far up north into Glacier Watershed uh, Parks and basically go pike fishing and walleye fishing. The first time I took him, we were out on the boat on our first full day of fishing And we had been out there hours, and we'd caught absolutely nothing. And now I've fished most of my life, and so for me, I wasn't too discouraged about it. I enjoyed it, I was spending time with my son. It was a beautiful setting, you know, the sun's nice. And Josiah, though, he's thinking like, this is a waste of my time. This is totally boring, we're sitting in this boat, There's nothing to do. I have no iPad or iPhone or video games. We're just here. I'm not catching any fish. And so he said he so badly wanted to go back to the beach. Well, that was making me frustrated. He wanted to go back to the beach because he wanted to eat granola bars and look for frogs and catch some leeches. That's what the boys would do. They'd catch leeches and then they'd torture them with salt and just watch them wiggle around. It's like, you know, a horrible horror movie for the leeches. And so. He wanted to play with the leeches and eat their granola bars and and catch the frogs and throw some sticks into a fire. And I was like, no, man, just let's give it more time. Let's give it more time. And my patience was running things, so I started praying, God, please help this boy catch a fish. No joke, within about three minutes, a couple more casts, he pulled in his first pike. And when he pulled in that pike... He got into the boat and he was so excited, right? He was so excited. And he couldn't wait to catch another one. The thrill of catching that pike caused him to build this desire to want to catch another pike. And now if you were to ask him, what is the one thing you look forward to more than anything else in the entire year, he says, a fishing trip to Northern Ontario to catch pike. It's his favorite thing. I want to spiritualize this Think about the expression, catching people for life. When is the last time you caught a fish? The Christian life can get really boring if you never catch a fish. And I fear that so many evangelicals today are sitting in that boat saying, man, this is just a waste of my time. There's so many other things I'd rather be doing in this life. There's so many priorities and passions that I have that are a whole lot more than this. This really isn't what I want to invest my energy, strength, and time into. Why is my faith so stagnated? Why is my faith so mundane? Why is there no spiritual activity that I see in the Holy Spirit's movement around me? If we're not catching fish, if we're not catching people, then we end up just wanting to do other things with our time, and our faith ends up being personal and, at best, additional. There's no thrill. Does the gospel motivate you to mission? Do you have a passion A deep-rooted passion to catch people for life. Where does catching people for life land on your priority list in a week? How high is it? Let that one just sit for a moment. And let me share the final one briefly. The last answer to how a Christian makes a multiplicational impact for the gospel. Surrender to Jesus' call on your life. The last verse here, verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything, followed him. Jesus is calling you into a multiplying life, and with our new life in Christ comes a new purpose for Christ. Luke doesn't say they sold their boats, their fishing nets, or their homes. Followed here is a loaded word that means they gave Jesus their deepest inward attachment. Jesus calls us to all kinds of jobs, but our primary job description is to catch men and women for life to multiply the gospel into lives. How does a Christian make a multiplicational impact for the gospel? Be aware of Jesus' presence in your life. It starts with submission and the understanding of who he is and that only he can rescue. Know Jesus' purpose for your life. Surrender to his call on your life. And when you do, just like Josiah was when he pulled in that fish I just knew it. I saw it on his face. No pun intended, but I knew he was hooked. He was hooked. Here's the thing. If you catch a person, you'll be hooked. And you will come to the conclusion there is no greater thrill in this life than catching people for the gospel. There is no better thing to do. Why else do we come together? That's what the church is for. That when we come together, we would spur one another on towards love and good deeds. To what end? So that people would be caught by the gospel. So that people would come to know Christ. Is this a passion of your heart? Is this something that's prioritized in your life? Is this something where you're like, I can't wait to go and catch people. I can't wait for that next bite. I can't wait for that next person. I can't wait for that person who moves from spiritual death, eternal depravity, to life, new life in Jesus Christ. Who's it gonna be? Just waiting, expectantly. Just casting your nets here and there, and where's it gonna be, Lord, where's it gonna be? I can't wait, that's my thrill, that's my passion. That's who we're to be as people. That's who we're to be as a church. I I don't think it was an accident that this message landed about a month before Easter. Do you think that maybe God set that up? Because it certainly wasn't in our planning. Maybe he set that up because it's a month for us to practice this. To say this is what it means. So when our church is talking about, yeah, inviting some people and investment strategies or whatever, it's like, no, do we really see it? Here's the thrill of being the church. Let's do it. And so I believe that God gave us this mandate, this text for this time, for this group of people, for a purpose of redeeming lives. And I hope you do more than hear me today. I hope you believe me. More than believing me, I hope you believe the words of Christ from his word. Father, thank you for this day and for your text, for this story, for this Narrative. Father, I first want to pray for anyone who is here and maybe they felt the weight of their own sin, they're in agony over their sin, and they've never submitted their lives to you and said, Jesus, you are my Lord. I pray that in these moments, even in their hearts this morning, that they would pray and receive Jesus as the rescuer, as the Messiah as the only one who can forgive and restore and redeem. And Father, I pray for all of us who have received that salvation, we still feel the weight of that agony, but help us then not to run away from you in those moments, but to run to you, to rediscover our passion, to rediscover what we've been saved from so it will inspire us to catch others with that same gracious truth. Father, we want to be fishers of people. And Father, I pray that names and faces from our networks and neighborhoods and workplaces would come to mind and we would say, you know what? It's time for me to throw some lures back in the water. It's time for me to cast some nets and see what the Lord does. And to experience the thrill of that movement for your gospel. Father, we are expectantly awaiting it. In Jesus' name, amen.